Welcome to a special bonus edition of Kibbe on Liberty. So much is happening in Washington, D.C. And the man we had on last week, Congressman Thomas Massey, is perhaps the most unpopular person inside the Beltway today. So we thought we'd do a special episode, ask the congressman to come back on. Um, I feel like there's a lot of disinformation and confusion about what has transpired on the floor of the House over the last uh, couple days, and I thought we'd get it straight from you. Congressman Massey, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. Little did I know a week ago that within uh, 24 hours I'd be in a car headed to D.C., but that's what happened. Uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, I drove through the night to get to D.C. because what I found out was that even though the Senate voted and 96 senators showed up for work, the plan in Nancy Pelosi's chamber was to pass it by unanimous consent with virtually nobody there. Now, this is the biggest wealth transfer in the history of humankind, not in the history of our country. I mean, this would make the Roman emperors blush, this kind of plunder. Um, but that's what's going on in this bill. And it's, it's, it's said that it's a $2 trillion bill. It's really $6 trillion all told. And here's what I mean by the wealth transfer. Take $6 trillion, divide it by 100 million families. That's $60,000 a family. That's the size of this bill. And they're offering $1,200 checks to every working member of the family. So a family may get $1,200. They, they may get $3,000 because they get some checks for the kids. That's far short of the $60,000. Now, what's, what's all that about? Well, that's about making Wall Street whole. That's about making the banks whole. And who's going to be on the hook for that money? It's the taxpayers. This $1,200, that's the cheese in the trap. And this bill is a trap. So I thought, there's no way we can let this pass by unanimous consent. And I got I literally, I got my constitution back out just to make sure I was right on this point. And sure enough, right there it is in the constitution. It says that you have to have a quorum and a quorum is half of Congress for the purposes of the Constitution, has to be present in order to pass legislation. Now, I was getting emails from my leadership telling all the Republicans, and I know the Democrats were sending out the same emails, oh, stay home, we got this, we got this, you just stay home. And uh, so I got to Washington, D.C. They said, well, no, you know what, we're not going to do it by unanimous consent, we're going to have uh, a voice vote. And we're still going to tell people to stay home. And again, I'm like, look, that's going to violate the Constitution. You should be telling them to get here. Now, by this point, I was getting blamed in the media for delaying this, you know, this bill. A lot of people wanted this bill. The stock market was depending on this bill. And they were, they were starting to blame me for delaying it. Well, they had planned to have this voice vote on Friday. And they were telling me that if I showed up on Friday, and demanded a recorded vote, this would push the bill to Saturday or Sunday because they had guaranteed every member 24 hours notice before a vote. We're having this discussion on Thursday morning though. I'm like, don't wait for Friday for me to call your bluff. Why don't you believe that I am going to come to the floor and ask for a recorded vote? I've done it dozens of times before. I know how to do it. I'm in DC, I'm right here in town. I'm going to do it. Tell them to come to work. And at that point they said, well, it's not, it's not safe for us to come to work. You know, there's a virus out there and we should really stay home. 
And I thought, boy, isn't that rich? They're telling the truck drivers to get in their trucks and bring the products to the stores. They're telling the Amazon warehouse workers, come to work so we can buy it now. They're telling the grocery store baggers, don't just bag our grocery, bring it out to our car, won't you? And meanwhile, congressmen make $174,000 a year. They've got their health care paid for by the taxpayer. And they think that, you know, not that they're not essential, but they're so essential that they should just stay home and phone it in, contrary to the Constitution. So I got a lot of grief over that. People were blowing up my phone. Are you really going to make us come there? And everybody had their own story about how I was a horrible human being. And meanwhile, the media is, is putting out there on Thursday that there's one guy and he's going he's gonna to wreck this whole bill, which was, and, it, and it was going to delay the whole bill. And so uh, Friday rolls around. Now, this is, this is another really rich part. They debated for four hours. So I, I was called a, a third-rate grandstander by the president. And I took great offense at that because I think I'm at least second rate. And, uh, but in any case, there was four hours of grandstanding. If anybody tuned into C-SPAN, they were literally giving everybody a minute to get up there and talk about how they were taking care of the people. But there's one person they didn't give one minute of time to. They didn't give me 30 seconds. I went and asked our leadership. I said, when can I speak? When am I up? And they had their list and they said, well, we'll put you on the waiting list. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you, these are all these other people expressed interest in speaking about the bill um, and you didn't express interest early enough. And so you're going to be on the waiting list, which is absolutely laughable if you think about it. Uh, I, they were all there because I said, come to work and the Constitution requires it. In any case, after four hours of debate and grandstanding by my colleagues, I walked up to the microphone and demanded a recorded vote. In the seven and a half years that I have been in Congress, I've done this several dozen times. Other members have done it as well. And never, never has anybody been denied a recorded vote. So at that point, my, my only parliamentary option when they said, no, we're not going to give you the recorded vote is to, is to note the absence of a quorum. Now, uh, and, and you do that because that's your constitutional fuse and they have to prove that they have a quorum, at which point they, they drug in or had drug in members of Congress and spaced them up in the gallery where normally tourists sit. So they were able to fit a bunch of congressmen in there, uh, you know, a quorum, I presume, because we never got an official count. When I, when I noted the absence of a quorum, they, uh, the, the speaker, pro tem, looked around for one second, said there was a quorum, put the gavel down, and said the bill passed. Now, could I have protested? Could I have tried some other parliamentary incantation at that point? I could have. It would have fallen on deaf ears because the count by the speaker is not appealable. And even if I could have appealed it, uh, more than half of Congress wouldn't have helped me to override the speaker's uh, decision. But I decided, though, when they acknowledged that they had a quorum and they still weren't going to vote, they just called themselves out right there. Look, they could have passed the bill with the recorded vote. They had enough members there to do it if what they said was true. But what they did is 
they didn't have the vote. So for the biggest bill in history, the biggest wealth tra transfer in human history, there is no recorded vote. Now, what was their motive for that? Well, the motive from both the Republicans and Democrats who were conspiring together to keep people off the record was that they wanted to protect their incumbents against primary challengers. People are going to look back at this bill and say, this was the TARP. This was the bailout. This was 10 times worse than TARP. And when they look back and try to find out who voted for it, there is no record of who voted for it. And that, that was the real reason they went through all of this. So now I'm getting, uh, I'm getting kicked. I'm getting beaten up by folks. And, uh, but hey, uh, I've been there before. I've been booed on the floor of the House of Representatives for standing up to the for the Constitution, standing up to their malfeasance. And that's, that's what I did Friday, even if everybody in Washington, D.C. hated me. Hey, can you still hear me? I can hear you. So I, I just had a, uh, a complete computer meltdown, um, and I switched to another computer. I happen to be inside the beltways, so I don't want to spin any wild conspiracy theories as to why they might shut down the show. But uh, I do, I do have a follow-up question. The, um, the, the argument that you held up the bill um, has anyone, and, and Nancy Pelosi has has been calling you names. She called you a dangerous nuisance. And has anyone pointed out that, that she held up the bill for a week to, to put in all that special stuff? And, and I think it was her, uh, the majority leader, or I, I forget exactly who it was, that said this was a wonderful opportunity for the Democrats in the House to transform legislation to fit their vision of the future. Where, where's that argument? Well, you know, Nancy Pelosi called me a dangerous nuisance. I'd be offended if she had just called me a nuisance. I mean, a nuisance is somebody who's not effective, but a dangerous nuisance threatens your whole agenda. And that's what I did to Nancy Pelosi. I've actually made it much harder for her to pass the fourth version of this bill. She said that uh, the, this Corona 3, I'm going to call it the third bill. By the way, I voted for the first one. We can talk about why I did that uh, later. But she said that Corona 3, the $2 trillion, which is really $6 trillion, was just a down payment, and she wanted to have Corona 4. Well, uh, she's on notice now that if she wants to do that, she is going to have to drag at least 216 members of the U.S. House of Representatives to Washington, D.C. to pull that off. She's going to have her own conference, her own Democrats mad at her uh, just for trying to pass another bill because... I mean, they're scared, they're lazy, they don't want to come to work, they'll be it. And, and so I think I actually strengthened the president's hand in terms of keeping Nancy Pelosi from running the tables here in a month or so with the fourth bill. It's, uh, I, I want to revisit this whole question of, of your constitutional responsibility to do this. But before I do that, I think it's, it's useful to remind people the, the ancient history of of legislating by budget panic, because it feels to me like uh, certainly you go back to the 2008 Wall Street bailout, but but even since you were elected to Congress in 2012, is that right? Yeah. That um, there's there's been no regular order. There's been very few opportunities for legislators to actually represent their constituents uh, more and more. And it's, it's uh, John Boehner did it and Nancy Pelosi did it before him. And uh, um, 
Paul Ryan did it as well. This this process of they they write these massive budgets behind closed doors, and then they they look for an opportune time to create either a fake or a real budgeting crisis, and they they insist on passing these things before anyone knows what's in them. And now we're in a real crisis, and now we've run up the debt to, what is it, $25 trillion now? And they're, they're sort of skipping the entire pretense that, that, that the people have any representation in Congress. Where's the outrage on that? There should be a lot of outrage, because, by the way, there's going to be a trillion dollar, uh, actually, the spending bill is due by September 31st. So think about that. This is the this this two trillion, which is actually six trillion, is in addition to three trillion dollars of entitlements and the one trillion of spending that has to happen by September thirty first. The spending is just insane, uh, and like you said, there's no process. Here's what we should have been doing, Matt. We should have been holding hearings on how do you battle the coronavirus. We should have been holding hearings where the doctors show up, not just one doctor. Get three or four doctors in a hearing and let's have them show us their epidemiological models that justify shutting down an entire economy. That's, those are the kind of hearings we should have been having. We should have been having hearings on a Manhattan Project to take on this virus, right? The one thing that I regret that the White House has been saying, which is completely false, is that we don't want everyone tested. Of course we want everyone tested. We don't... I mean, right now they're testing politicians and celebrities and people that die. Why don't we start testing the people that might be sick or might not be sick instead of telling them, go home and ride this out. And if it gets worse, come back and we'll test you. Every American deserves to be tested. And by the way, we need another kind of test too. In the, uh, we need a test for the antigens and the antibodies to know if you've had this and recovered. Maybe you were even asymptomatic, but now you can't carry the virus and you can't catch the virus. Those are the people that should be allowed to move freely and go, I mean, everybody should be allowed to move freely, but those are the people that should be encouraged to move freely, encouraged to go to the nursing homes, encouraged to go to work, um, encouraged to be cashiers. And if we had sort of a Manhattan project where we looked at how do you get respirators and ventilators and, uh, and the tests made, all of that stuff cheaply without nationalizing our car companies. That's what this bill should have been about. And I could have voted for something like that. And, and that's what the first bill was about, Matt. It was $8 billion and it was targeted at responding to the virus. It wasn't about how are we gonna make the bankers and the shareholders whole in this uh, economic crash that's been um, partially caused by the virus, but exacerbated to a much greater degree by the government. Yeah, this this number that you you, you uh, crunch the numbers. Uh, everyone, not everyone, but most people are getting twelve hundred dollars, some kind of rebate to help them pay the rent if they've been forced out of their job. Um, but but if if we're really redistributing money to the people, that could have been a sixty thousand dollar check if you include all of the, the Federal Reserve thrown money around as well. Now think about that. That's first of all, that's an insane amount of money. And, and I worry about what happens in very short order if we're hoping that our government is going to sort of prop us all up while they don't allow us to, to produce things. 
Um, we're it's not we're a lot richer than Venezuela was when it started to go south. But I feel like this idea of just printing money and distributing it and borrowing it um, that's at best a short term fix. And I'm not sure it's a fix at all. It's not a fix. Twelve hundred dollars is the cheese in the trap. Twelve hundred dollars is the coating on the cyanide pill that makes it go down. I mean, $1,200 is nothing. That's, you can't replace somebody's livelihood with $1,200. And by the way, if that person worked at a factory making insulin, or if that person worked on a, a, at a farm store that sells the fertilizer that has to go on the fields here in the next few weeks, or else food production goes by, down by 20 or 30%, uh, if those are the kind of people that are told to stay home and take $1,200, then we're in a, a lot of trouble. And and we're going to have, I, I want the most compassionate policy possible, right? I want the fewest casualties. I want the, the best well-being of our citizens. And that's not the path that we're on right now. We, the path that we're on is going to cause more people to die of suicide. More people will, will die of diabetes and other complications than we'll ever die from this coronavirus if we stay on the path that we're on. The other thing is the government needs to level with us. I think we talked about this on your last show. Don't tell me that, that a, a mask, an N95 mask, only works for doctors. Like, tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. They're scarce, and we want the doctors and the nurses to have them first. But don't tell me we don't, that they don't confer any benefit to everybody else. Actually, what you should be telling us is, Instead of staying at home and not going to work, how do we go to work without catching it or spreading it to our, our fellow human beings? Tell us how we do that. And then let's work on those problems. Instead of trying to put the problems under the rug, I mean, the problem is we don't have enough of these masks. The problem is we don't have enough of these tests. Let's work on the problem instead of lying to the people. And then the, the people will do great. You know, what's funny is a lot of people were joking about the folks who were running out and buying toilet paper or other provisions. And they were saying, you know, coronavirus doesn't cause a symptom that requires you to need toilet paper. Well, the people weren't responding to the coronavirus. The people were responding to the government's reaction to the coronavirus, which is going to, you know, could shut down toilet paper production. Uh, and so actually, as irrational as the people seem, it's only if you assume the paradigm, it's only if you believe what the government's telling you. And now we are in what my wife calls airport mode, okay? Have you ever been in an airport where they say your flight's been delayed 15 minutes? And they don't give you any reason so that you could make a guess about whether it's going to be 15 minutes or longer. And then an hour later, they come on and they say, oh, your flight's been delayed an additional two hours. No reason given. And then, or some obscure reason that may, not, may or may not be the truth. Eventually, your flight's canceled and you're looking for a hotel. Uh, that's where we are right now. I mean, the president said Easter. He just said that a few days ago. Now he's saying April 30th. And the truth is, if the scientists who are advising the president would share their models, it may be much longer than that. Yeah. If, if we are, in fact, able to flatten the curve, which, honestly, there hasn't been any evidence of that yet, um, and people can get mad at me for saying that, but show me the charts. Um, if we if we haven't been able to flatten the curve, if we aren't able to flatten the curve, this will, this will pass through fairly quickly. But if we are able to flatten the curve, 
This goes to July and August. These are, this is what the doctors are telling us. We're telling us this week, okay, on the congressional calls. They're saying, okay, this may go quiescent in July and August, but then it's going to flare back up in September. And, they, and, and these doctors who are advising the politicians up there are saying, we're going to shut it all down again this fall and get ready for being in a cycle of this. Those, <laughs> share that information with us, folks. The White House needs to step up and share that information. People are smart. People can act rationally. But when the government is, seems like they're trying to hide something from them, that's when people get scared. Yeah, yeah a, little, a little bit of transparency and consistency because, because I think uncertainty is one, of the, it was, is one of the key destructive economic forces here. If you're hoarding toilet paper, it's because you don't, you don't trust the government not to do something really stupid. And this, this whole uh, chain of, of the division of labor where, where some governor or some bureaucrat is deciding that this function is essential and, and another function is not, they, they don't understand anything about economics and the interconnectedness of all of us when we work. But, but I want to go back to the, the, the point you made. It's worth saying again, this isn't about saving lives versus saving the economy. What we're really having is a debate about how to save as many lives as possible. So it's it's lives versus lives. And right. one, par one paradigm for saving lives is to lock everybody up in their homes. Um, another paradigm for saving lives, particularly if we're, 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 if you flatten the curve, you're lengthening the curve. The other paradigm is figuring out how to keep people safe, how to make sure that cancer patients still have access to chemotherapy all of these things that keep us alive on a regular basis, um, the, the top-down, shut-it-all-down model just ignores that complete trade-off. It does ignore it. Like, here's some of the trade-offs that are happening in Kentucky. Uh, most of the rural hospitals are going broke right now because they've been told to keep their beds empty. They've been told to conserve PPE. And so they've been told, and this is a government mandate, you can't uh, bring in people for elective procedures. You've got to postpone all of that. Probably what they should have done is try to get all the elective procedures done early before this ons onslaught comes. Because we're at a different stage in Kentucky than they are in New York. But the Kentucky governor is trying to do, is trying to copy what New York is doing. Like, it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. I talked to a radiologist who said he's been told, like, unless he can prove the person is, like, really, really sick, uh, that he's not even allowed to do the radiology. And that he said, what I should be doing is scanning as many of these patients as possible right now before we get backed up. And that's a, that's a radiolog radiologist in Florida who's telling me that. But the governors, you know, they've adopted this command and control. They're, they're trying to run the economy. They're trying to decide what's essential, what's not essential. Uh, and that's that's scary. By the way, they at least they haven't shut the gun stores down here in Kentucky. And I've seen a, a wonderful innovation that I hope we keep after this, which is drive-through gun stores. Uh, my daughter just went to one of these. She texted me. She said, "You want me to pick anything up for you?" And she showed me the uh, the menu that you're given at the drive-through. It looks like a sushi menu of ammunition. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, put a one in all of those boxes for me. I've got all those calibers. Uh, but anyways, that's just a little 
a lightheartedness, but it's it's serious. I mean, that's they have four lanes at this drive-through gun store in Kentucky. I wholly approve of it, and I hope we keep that sort of stuff up. You know, my uh, um, you might disagree with me, but my uh, drive-through gun store nightmare is uh, certain governors are actually shutting down liquor stores now, and I, I feel like if we're gonna if we're gonna go through the apocalypse, I, I would prefer a nice cold beer next to me while I'm doing that. Well, you make a good point, uh, but here's the downside of that. And I, and I know you consume in moderation, but there are certain people who, uh, when they're told to stay home, they get bored. They need to be active. And the thing that and maybe people who have alcoholism and they have uh, the one thing that keeps them from reverting back is that they stay busy. Well, now I think you're going to see a surge in yeah. alcoholism, in drug addiction. I mean, the places that have been hardest hit by uh, drug addiction and alcoholism are the places where unemployment is the highest, right? You go to s some of the areas here in Kentucky where unemployment, it's been as high as double digits. That's where the drug, uh, the drug crisis hits the hardest. Well, now the whole country's going to be in double digits. And it, I mean, just common sense and historical data tells you that that's what we're going to start seeing now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I joke about that, but the one place where drinking would be appropriate is if, if you actually dug through this bill that you insisted that they vote on and they decided not to vote on it anyway. Um, they don't want to be accountable for the things that they did. And, you know, everyone has now learned that there's $25 million for the Kennedy Center. This is one of the provisions that Nancy Pelosi specifically held up the bill for a week to get in there. And the Kennedy Center, having received that $25 million, proceeded to lay off their musicians anyway. So what what are we throwing around money for? What What's some other garbage in this bill? Oh, well, I mean, there's all sorts of little garbage like that. I'm sorry to call $25 million little, but a trillion is a million millions, okay? So if you find a million dollars wasted in there, you would have to find a million of those things to come up to a trillion. And this bill spends two trillion. Let me tell you what I think some of the most insidious things in this bill are, or the most insidious thing that's not being discussed. As far as I can tell, this, this takes uh, uh, the, the very long leash that the Federal Reserve has had and takes the leash off of them. There's going to be less accountability at the Federal Reserve, and I believe they're going to start taking positions in the market. You know, <laughs> what's the definition of insider trading? If you have information that the rest of the public doesn't have and you trade on that, then you're doing insider trading. Tell me if the Federal Reserve knows when the interest rates are going to change, how are they going to lose in the stock market? They can't lose. And if they do lose, they just change the interest rates and they win again. It's like the, the bulldozer in the quarter machine at the county fair that pushes the quarters off uh, the ledge. And it looks like you can make money and you put your quarter in and you put more quarters in and you just lose money. That's what our stock market could become for the individual investor. They're never going to see the forces that are at work against them. They're never going to have the information that's available to other people. And the game is going to be rigged more so than ever. Now, the Federal Reserve can come back and say, 
well, look, we made money on these trades. Obviously, this was a good thing. Well, how did they make money? Somebody lost money somewhere. And it's going to be the, the individual investor who has no chance. I mean, people should be really worried about this. They're, that's what bothers me is, is not, not as much that we're wasting money at the Kennedy Center. That does bother me. Um, what bothers me more so is we're, we're changing who's running this government. By the way, who is running this government? If the if this stimulus package is six trillion dollars and Congress controls two trillion of it, and the Fed and the Treasury control four trillion, then who's running the country? This this, this reminds me of the second best solution for for insiders in Washington during the Wall Street bailout. Um, you'll recall that Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner walked hand in hand down to the House floor and said, we must pass this legislative bailout of Wall Street. And grassroots America went bananas, perhaps for the first time because they had technology. And so the second option was for the Treasury Secretary to go to Ben Bernanke, then chairman of the Fed, and say, we need you to do this because you are insulated from any accountability for the people. And we still have trillions of of toxic assets on the on the on the bank sheet of the Fed, and now we've turbocharged that. Who is in charge? Um, this is scary stuff, and you know, some of us have been made fun of for years. You know, Ron Paul was ringing this bell a long time ago. You were, I was. Uh, people worried about Federal Reserve policy and and how manipulation of money and credit can can be a huge transfer of wealth from from. All of us, anybody that holds banknotes, anybody that has a savings account, to insiders that know how to manipulate that. But but what you're saying, and I think it's worth kind of repeating so people understand what's happening here. What you're saying is that they've now permanently rigged the game, and and this is just unmeasurably dangerous. The the game was rigged to a large degree already. They have rigged it even more. And I think it's um, extremely dangerous what they have done. How does how does uh, a regular investor stand a chance? You know, there was some anger at some senators recently, Republican and Democrat, who seem to have traded on information that they uniquely received about this virus. And I, you know, one of my thoughts was, well, the best way to fix that is instead of the senators and the congressmen filing reports about significant stock trades within a week of making the stock trade, file the report the day before you make the stock trade. And that way, if you're operating on inside information, everybody else gets the benefit of knowing what you're going to do. And they can say, oh, well, he's a senator and he's doing that. Maybe I should do that. Maybe he's got some information I don't have. You know, the Federal Reserve isn't even going to have to tell you after the fact what the trade was. And I mean, that's, that's dangerous. They should have to tell you before the fact. Um, and again, it's going to take a while, I think, for people to unravel what this bill really is. I know that there's, you know, a populist and, and righteous pushback against what Nancy Pelosi's trying to stuff in there, all those little pork projects. And she's not the only one. I mean, there's some Republicans, I'm sure, who got some projects in there. The, the lobbyists in D.C. are sitting up there. This should have been debated in committee, right? This should have been written by congressmen, not written in a back room by uh, financial advisors 
and just a limited number of members of Congress and their staffs. This should have been debated in daylight. So it's going to take a while before everybody gets to see and understand the, how evil this bill is. And, and again, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. I do believe there's a role for government here uh, to respond to this virus. But it's, it's, don't use this virus as an excuse to enrich uh, people who are already rich at the expense of the taxpayers. So you have called this the lar largest transfer of wealth from working people to uh, corporate and political insiders. Explain specifically which pieces of this legislation are most egregious to you. Um, well, I think I just explained that. Not the Fed stuff, but I'm talking about the corporate bailouts. Oh, well, okay. Let's look at a corporation. Okay, take, take an airline, for instance. The airlines have good business models, right? Let's, let's say when this is all over with and things return to normal, they need money to keep operating. Or let's say they need money to keep operating right now. The shares that are held in a company represent an agreement about how the shareholders are going to share the future profits that that company is going to make. Okay? So um, if, if a company needs more money, the most obvious if it's a publicly traded company, the most obvious way to gain that money is to sell more shares. Now, the existing shareholders don't want to sell shares because that dilutes them. Just like printing money is going to dilute all the retirement savings, when they have to go out and sell shares, they're going to have to give up some of their future profits to new shareholders. And that's what they're trying to avoid doing. Now, you're saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe we should make them whole. Here's the problem. When you privatize the profits and socialize the risks, now you've got socialism. You've got some, something that's even worse than socialism, right? You've got this thing that, frankly, um, a lot of the Bernie bros should be really ticked off about um, because that's the way capitalism works. If you wanted a safe return on your investment, you would buy something other than stock in a company that's dependent on 10,000 factors in order to make money. And this, that's one of the things that concerns me the most about this, Matt, is the bailouts. When you socialize the, the risks, when you say the backstop is going to be the American taxpayer, but the profits are going to go to the shareholders, and we're going to make sure those shareholders don't have to dilute their own stock in order to stay in business. So I don't know if you want to answer this question, and, and that's okay, but when you were on the floor, you mentioned Bernie Bros. and. Yeah, I'm thinking of our our favorite Bernie bro on the House floor. But were there members of Congress that were supportive of your efforts for some of the reasons that you just said? There were there. You know, ultimately, I didn't hear any Democrat uh, when they asked for a voice vote. I didn't hear any nays on that side of the aisle. Now, I think in a couple of years, you, you hear a lot of them say they said nay. But I didn't hear any nays over there. And I think they should have followed their instincts instead of going with the herd. I, I wish they had been with me uh, and stood up when I demanded a recorded vote, because one-fifth of Congress needed to stand in order to get the recorded vote. Of course, if I'd had 90% of Congress standing, the Speaker would have still denied me the recorded vote. Uh, but, but there were people that supported me, Matt. Even though there were people who support this bill that supported me. I had members of Congress 
who's, who said yay when they asked for the yays and nays, but who told me, you know what, you're right. We should be on record. Now, they didn't want to come out and say it because at that moment I was the most hated man in Washington, D.C., and, and probably on the East Coast and the West Coast, and certainly in, in Wall Street I was the most hated man. Uh, so nobody really wanted to stick their neck out to that degree, but there were some solid individuals who were backing me on the floor and who've given me phone calls since then. Uh, and just to give a few of them a shout out, uh, Ken Buck was the strongest one on this. He, he, like me, said, there's no way we can let this go by unanimous consent. And um, he was against the bill. Alex Mooney was against the bill. Alex Mooney, they did allow him to speak. And so he gave a very strong one minute uh, speech against the bill. Paul Gosar has been very supportive of me. Uh, and I don't know which way these guys would have voted on the record. I'm just saying these are people who said, you know what, you're right, need a recorded vote. Justin Amash was a no on this bill for a lot of the same reasons I was a no on this bill. And he agreed that we need a recorded vote. And by the way, my hope is that when Nancy Pelosi's uh, coronavirus 4.0 bill comes out and she floats that, that I'll have 20 or 30 other members. I hope I can survive this politically. Uh, and, and if I could just for a second refute the argument that I did this for political reasons. Like I was literally threatened uh, with what would happen before it happened. You know, those tweets that uh, the president did against me. Yeah. I knew that I knew those were coming if I uh, requested recorded vote. Like that wasn't, it wasn't like I was surprised when those tweets came out, okay? I, I'm not saying there was a quid pro quo, but I definitely was, uh, people let me know what was coming down the pipeline. And that's tough in a, in a state where, in a district where the president has a 96% approval rate rating in the primary electorate, and my toughest challenge is winning the primary. I can assure you, I, I didn't do this for fun, because it is no fun to be hated as much as I was hated. People are still writing the hate articles. They, there's, there's so much hate to get out, they haven't got it all on paper yet. I uh, didn't do this for political advantage. It might have just cost me my reelection. I'm gonna be honest with you. And I knew that when I took the vote. Um, so, you know, let's put that to bed, that this was some kind of political stunt. Yeah, the, the hate the hate does seem to be sort of factless in its in its basis because, as you've already carefully explained, the, there was no delay in the vote except for the very long delay that Nancy Pelosi created. Uh, right. I, I don't really, I've never really quite understood the argument that that people that stand on principle are somehow doing it as as political opportunists. It, argu arguably, it's the political opportunists that that really don't like being exposed as that. But it is a weird world where President Trump, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and John Kerry all hate you for the same reason. John Kerry has called you a mass hole, whatever, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, I think he may be projecting, I'm not sure, but uh, it's, you know, it's I, weird. It's, he, he came and was humiliated in front of our oversight committee when he tried to pretend he had the imprimatur of a scientist, that he was an expert on uh, global warming. And I pointed out that his only science degree was a political science degree, that he had a quasi-science degree or a pseudo-science degree. And I, I think I've been living rent-free in his head ever since then. Uh, 
and, and by the way, he said that uh, I tested positive for being an a-hole. I, I, I bit my tongue, but I wanted to say it. At least I haven't been symptomatic since birth, uh, which, I, which is, uh, you know, he's kind of got a congenital condition there. Yeah. Um, but in any case, when you've got Nancy Pelosi against you and when you've got John Kerry against you, I think it's okay if, if you believe in what you're doing, uh, even if the president comes against you. I, I did have people when I waded into this who said, come on, there's a time, there's, this isn't the hill to die on. And what they don't realize is if somebody doesn't stand on this hill, you've already given up the next hill. You've already given Pelosi uh, her fourth bill. That's, that's already a given because travel's gonna get harder. Congressmen are gonna get more scared. They're gonna wanna stay home and she's gonna develop leverage uh, as, as the crisis worsens. It's gonna worsen, we're prolonging it by the way, by paying the governors to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, so anyways, that's, that's how it's uh, boiling down for me. Um, and, but I wanna tell you who is supporting me. The truck drivers, who look at these politicians and say, are you telling me, they're trying to say they would ex be exposed if they go to work and they're making $174,000 a year and I'm paying for their health care, and they wanna violate the constitution and stay home. Like the, the folks that work at the grocery store support me, everybody that's deemed an essential worker. I guess you're essential if you're doing something that a congressman needs right? That's what Nancy Pelosi has decided. That's what, you know, some of these governors have decided. If it's something they want, then they're going to say you're essential. But as far as themselves, they've decided that they are so essential that they're special and that they don't have to go to work. And that's, you know, that kind of arrogance, I think, is really galling to the people who are getting up and still going to work and putting food on plates. And um, those are the people who are supporting me now. And I'll take them over the swampers any day of the week. I agree with you a thousand percent. Let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit more about what you're describing as a Manhattan Project, because I think, I think this is the point where we, we sort of point out legislative dysfunction and we point out the economic costs of, of governors just shutting down the economy. And, and people are going to repeat again and again and again that Thomas Massey just doesn't care. Um, and I'm thinking about um, what the government could do in the context of what the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, failed to do with testing early on. Because as far as I can tell, the, the big government failure happened when the experts should have done their job. Yeah, what about like an X prize for this first person who comes up with a $10 test? Okay, look, <laughs> the, the, the real prize there, by the way, if you just let capitalism work, is that if you have a $10 test and 350 million people are gonna get tested probably more than once because you'd wanna, you know, one test doesn't prove that you'll never get it, right? But that would be $10 times 350 million, that's $3.5 billion of revenue to the first person that comes up with a $10 test. But there's risk involved and a lot of people who try to come up with that test are gonna fail. So put out an X prize for it, you know? It, maybe the one that comes up with the test isn't the one who dominates the market. That's okay. Show us that you can do it. 
and, and we'll pay for that. We are in a war here, okay, against a virus. So let's fight the virus. Let's don't, let's don't cower and then try to, you know, if you were in a war, can you imagine instead of putting, uh, instead of developing new weapons and, and trying to fight the war, you just stayed home and tried to deal with the effects on your economy of the war? You're gonna lose that war and your economy's gonna crash. We need to be on the front line here. So, you know, there, there is a place here where there is some risk and uh, the government can help on, on that part of it by providing incentives, providing guarantees. If Donald Trump would say, look, our goal is to test every American. And in order for that to happen, we need to get this test. By the way, if the tests were $100, even if they're $100, they got them down as far as I know to $140 in South Korea. But we're going to test 10 times, maybe 100 times as many people in this country. If the tests were $100 and there's 350 million people in the United States, that costs $35 billion. That's 1.5% of the $2 trillion number. It's half a percent of the $6 trillion number. Can we not spend 1% of what we're, we're spending to bail out uh, the big banks and Wall Street, can we not spend 1% of that on testing every American? Those are the kind of th things that I think we should be doing. And again, and getting the antigen testing going. As it is, it seems like the government's in the way. Now they're issuing exceptions. You can apply for an exception to the rule. Well, that's still another layer of government. Why don't, why don't we just assume that you can, you know, that we're gonna let you do this test. Instead of saying, mother, may I do the test, get out there and let people make these tests. And also the, the respirators, I mean, the, the regulations on the masks and whatnot, those are somewhat ridiculous and they're giving individual exemptions, but I think there's a better way to do it that incentivizes more people. Is that something that President Trump could do uh, by executive order. I'm not a big fan of executive orders, but he's been creating a lot of uh, at least temporary regulatory <clears throat> relief since the beginning of his presidency. And it seems like there's all of these barriers that we know about and probably uh, many more that we don't know about that is hampering uh, medical innovations and entrepreneurs and, and decentralized problem solving to do all of the things you're talking about in this so-called Manhattan Project. Does Congress have to do that, or can the president do things? You know, uh, the answer is, hell yes, he can do it, okay? Like, the bills that Congress write are so vague, like like all these restrictions on N95 uh, masks and, and the specifications. I doubt, now I could be wrong, but I doubt there was a congressional bill to deal with N95 masks specifically. So... Those were all sort of regulatory constructs, or, or most of it is. And, you know, just as easily as the executive branch built it, they could take it apart, and they should do it. And that's the first thing you should do before you try to grab the means of production at Ford and General Motors. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. Where do you, where, who are you going to hire? Who is he going to send over there to run General Motors? Is he going to send Mnuchin? Or, or Mick Mulvaney, who's he going to send to run General Motors? And, he, and are they going to be CEOs or are they going to be like middle management? Because if you're, you know, because you're going to have to be middle managers too to get anything done on the line. What engineers are they going to hire? They're going to be motivated to solve that problem. When you put a gun to somebody's head, are they going to work harder? 
I don't, I, I don't really think so. Are they going to work smarter? I don't think so. He's probably going to be nervous. And uh, I just think that that solution is a non-starter, nationalizing the means of production. Why don't yeah. you inspire, inspire and reward the means of production? The, how, many, how, many, how many freaking respirators, and, and, or more importantly, ventilators, how many ventilators could you buy with $2 trillion if you said tomorrow we're going to pay three times as much for a ventilator and any company that wants to make them, we're not going to say Ford and GM have to make them, but any company with the means or any combination of company with the means that can make them, we'll buy them and we'll pay three times as much as the going rate and we'll guarantee we're going to buy at least this many. It would be a drop in the bucket compared to the $2 trillion or $6 trillion number that just got passed that does nothing to solve that problem. Yeah, and I also feel like we would have this particular problem of ventilators solved within the week. We have that kind of capacity in this country. Yeah. Inst instead, now you got now you got governors yelling at the president that they don't have enough, and it's the president's job to get them. And the president's yelling at the company, saying, "I'm going to take over your company if you don't make me ventilators." Uh, and when they tell him we we can make six thousand ventilators, he says, "Not good enough. I'm going to take over your company." Like, I don't think that's going to, that is not going to work, okay? It's not going to work any more than the threats to me were going to work if I followed the Constitution. You say that uh, you've put your political career at risk, and I, I think you have. I, I think anyone that's being objective understands that you, you sort of put uh, your, your own personal interests on the line to do this. Are you getting positive feedback uh, from from anybody? I can tell you this: um, in the first in the first uh, forty eight hours or seventy two hours of me taking this stand, I received over a thousand donations, over a hundred thousand dollars. I think I had two thousand donors. The average donation was sixty three dollars. This. These aren't, this isn't uh, the, the bankers in Wall Street coming in with the max checks. These are some people are given $5, $20, $100. And I've, and I've received like 1,000 or 2,000 of those for taking this stand. And so um, trust me, $100,000 doesn't make up for three tweets from the president <laughs> against you. But um, it definitely is going to make it more possible for me to get my message out there and without it, I won't be able to survive. So it has really warmed my heart that there are people out there who care about what I did, who cared about the, I mean, there have been physical threats on my life, uh, on, at my house. Um, you know, people don't understand that my, my whole family is jeopardized by the media whipping up this idea that I'm somehow, uh, dangerous. And, um, but in, in any case, it inspires me to keep going. The fact that people got online and, and started donating to me after they saw what I was willing to do, knowing that it was going to make my reelection harder if I did that. It, it reminds me, and I, you know, I've always uh, believed that, that standing on principle ultimately can be good politics. And I, I know that most uh, experts don't believe that, but it it reminds me a little bit of the counter-revolution created by the Wall Street bailout and the bipartisan collusion and, and all that insider trading that happened then. Some 
of the people that emerged from that standing on principle became um, the leaders of the next generation. Certainly the, the Tea Party generation was part of that and, and you were part of that, that second wave. Um, but you know, ultimately, I don't. I don't think this is about politics, and I don't think this is about you know, is this a good opportunity to be in the short run? And I think you told people that on the first episode that we did together, we were talking about your your old friend Walter Jones, uh, a congressman from North Carolina, who deeply regretted a bad vote that he made on that and and he told you i think and i'm, I'm going to butcher your words but he he told you that ultimately he wanted to do the right thing so that when he was accountable to himself and his maker he could live with that yeah um walter yeah he regretted voting for the iraq war um I believe that was the vote that it was one of the wars that he voted for and um he wrote thousands and thousands of letters to the families of the soldiers who perished over there. And I think that was uh, transformational for him. And he always took every vote on principle when I was in Congress. And it really did hearten me. I got two emails. Uh, one was an email, one was a text from his uh, prior staffers who told me that they felt like I was channeling Walter Jones on the floor um, and by the way, they primaried Walter Jones every time. They tried to beat him. They outspent him uh, 10 to 1. Like there, it was, you know, like a million or $2 million against Walter's uh, 150 or $200,000. And Walter won every time because the people knew he was on their side. And no matter how much money they spent against him with, with some of these sketchy candidates, uh, he was he was always able to prevail. In, in the end, it was it was ultimately um, an illness that took him, because they could never take him out. Yeah, well, you probably couldn't see that, but uh, you at least have two fans on this side of the camera. My cat Ragnar has has joined me when you're talking about about working on principle. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you've been working nonstop over the last week to try to uh, inject a little bit of sanity into the congressional process. And I'm, I'm hoping, and I really like your message here, that you've, you've changed the legislative process at least a little bit moving forward so that we could start doing things that actually would help instead of things that are just hurting. Yeah, you know, Mike Pence told our GOP conference, when you're in the majority, you legislate. When you're in the minority, you communicate. Well, the reality is there are about 400 members of Congress in the minority, uh, and you can be in the majority, which is, I know that sounds that sounds uh, counterintuitive, but I'm talking about a minority of power. And on on Friday, I was a minority of one out of 430 some. Now I had a dozen friends who were supporting me, but I was the one who had to stand up and do that. My staff asked me the day before, one of my staffers says, do you really want to be that guy tomorrow? And I said, actually, I don't want to be that guy tomorrow. I know what that guy's going to endure tomorrow. He said, I want to be that guy two years from tomorrow. Looking back on that, when everybody else realizes it was the right thing to do. And that's, you know, so <laughs> it wasn't fun. 
I didn't do it for political reasons. I didn't do it for grandstanding. I did it to give people hope. Uh, if nobody stands up in Washington, D.C., then we have no hope. As long as there's one person who will speak truth to power, as long as there's one person, it doesn't have to be me, by the way. I, I was looking for somebody else to do this on Friday. And when Pelosi's fourth bill comes out, hopefully we can find somebody else. And, but I'm hopeful there'll be 30 of us in, um, that stand up together on that one. Okay, Congressman, thank you so much for the time and uh, keep up the fight. Will do. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.